Good evening. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, February 11th, 2021. Tonight is Rosh Chodesh Adar. Tonight, tomorrow, Friday, and Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh Adar. Shabbos is actually the first day of Adar. And that, of course, is the beginning of the season, Mishinichnes Adar Marbim Basimcha, when Adar comes in, our joy increases, and I hope that that is true for you, and um, we'll have to make it true. <clears throat> Classic famous question. We discuss it often, lots of different answers. The question is, last week's Torah portion, we had the Aseris Adibros, God revealed himself to the entire Jewish people at Mount Sinai, spoke the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Adibros. Clearly, the Ten Commandments are meant to be um, like um, a foreword, uh, an introduction that clearly must be then followed up with all the rest of the mitzvot. Which section of commandments should come first? Obviously, whichever one you choose, you're going to ask, why is that one first? But it does seem particularly unusual that immediately after this amazing event of God revealing himself about Sinai, the first Parsha is our Parsha this week, the Parsha of Mishpatim, which is about law. The truth is, <laughs> Mishpatim law is not even included in the Ten Commandments. I mean, you might think you have 10. Maybe after you finish the 10, you start over with number one and you, you, you uh, emphasize it and go into detail and then go to number two. But I mean, Mishpatim, like civil law, criminal law, is not even mentioned in the Aseris Adibros. And it seems like it, it doesn't immediately seem like uh, the most important subject that should come first after God reveals himself. So allow me tonight to share two basic approaches with some um, explanation of both. Alexander the Great lived about around the time 325 before the Common Era, and he conquered most of the ancient world. And his approach was, his, his formula was, that he defeated every country he invaded and defeated them and conquered them, except Israel. And it's quite odd because you would think especially Israel needed to be conquered because it was the crossroads of the ancient world. Anybody going anywhere had to pass through Israel from Asia to Europe to Africa. You had to pass through. Nonetheless, Alexander the Great came through and left in peace. I don't know about Jews at that time, how they appear within Greek sources. But Alexander the Great made a big hit in Jewish sources. Alexander, by the way, 
became a Jewish name. Till today, as you know, but it's given as a Jewish name. It's unique. It is the only, to my knowledge, the only name of a non-Jewish person that becomes a traditional Jewish name that is given by parents to their children. Just to think, Rabbi Alex is named after Alexander the Great. So the Talmud records in great detail Alexander's arrival in Israel and a famous story that happened there. So he came to Israel and he met Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Righteous, who was the Kohen Gadol, who was the high priest. He was the, the top Jewish spiritual leader at that time. And he met with other Jewish leaders and he was impressed by the values that he found there, by the morality that he found there. And he let them live in peace and undisturbed. He went on his way as he continued conquering the rest of the world, but he did not destroy. He didn't conquer. He just left them in peace. Unique. So the Talmud tells the following story. They wanted to show him Jewish life. They wanted to impress him. You know, Alexander the Great comes. You want to show him something nice? What do you think they showed him? What would you show to someone like that, an important visitor that you want to impress and you want them to respect you? They took him to Bechtin, to a Jewish court, to watch a trial. And the Talmud tells us what the trial was about. It was a civil case. It was a dispute between two parties. We'll just make up names, Ruvain and Shimon, and they were arguing over a buried treasure. The case was like this. Ruvain sold his house to Shimon. And Shimon, shortly after he moved in, found a buried treasure hidden within the walls of the house. So Shimon said, I bought the house from you, Ruvain. I found the treasure. I didn't know about the treasure. And that means I didn't pay for it. And therefore, it belongs to you. I insist that you, Ruvain, take the treasure. Ruvain says, no, I refuse to take it. I sold the house as is. I also didn't know about the treasure. I sold it as is. Whatever was hidden was included in the price. So I insist that it goes to you. And that's the case that Alexander the Great was watching with each litigant claiming that the treasure belonged to the other person. That's what the leaders wanted to show Alexander the Great. And that's what impressed him. And Alexander was impressed. And he left in peace. Our Parsha, Mishpatim, is the beginning of the presentation of Jewish law. Jewish law is a comprehensive legal system. There is within Jewish law a seamless integration of law, justice, theology, 
ethics, philosophy, social policy, every area of life is seamlessly integrated in its connection to Jewish law. That's the claim that Jewish law makes. Of course, you can question that claim. You can argue with that claim, but that's the claim that Jewish law makes. And that system has been the source of pride for the Jewish people from the very beginning of our history, 3,500 years ago until today. It's not only a source of pride, it is also a source of our identity as Jews. Because law is much more than just rules and punishments for violating the rules. Yes, that is a part of law. But law is also something much more. It is an expression of our values and our priorities, who we are as a people. Now, this is true about every legal system. I'll just give you uh, a current example. Um, today, tax law. Well, tax law is about how much you have to pay in tax. But the tax code is also about where we as a society express our values and our priorities. For example, here in Quebec, we pay higher taxes than most other places. And the reason that we pay higher taxes is because we offer universal health care. We offer very generous maternity leave. We offer very generous child benefit. That is what we in Quebec as a society hold as a priority. So the tax code is much more than just how much I have to pay. It expresses our values. I'll just give you another example. Privileged conversation. If you have a conversation with a rabbi or with a lawyer or with a doctor, it's privileged. That means it's confidential. What happens if a rabbi is called to court and asked to testify about what one of the congregants said to him in a counseling session, for example? So the rabbi invokes privilege. That's what the law says. I'm not able to reveal it. Why is there such a law? Because we believe that society is better off facilitating people to speak openly to a rabbi, to a doctor, to a lawyer. And that's more important than having public access to the truth. That's a decision that we make when we invoke that law. This is what is best for society. So those are values that are as much a part of law as the rule part of law. And coming back to our topic, we see deeper Jewish values expressed throughout our Parsha woven into the details of the laws 
that are presented. Let me give you a couple of examples. In this week's parsha, we learn a very interesting rule. The Pasuk says, if a person borrows something, an object, and it breaks, or let's say it was an animal, borrows someone's animal and the animal dies, the borrower has to compensate, has to pay him back. Now, the Talmud explains the borrower is responsible for any type of damage for any reason. Even if it was an accident that was completely unavoidable, unpreventable. I borrow a pen from you and then uh, a hurricane comes and it gets lost in the hurricane. I'm responsible to give you back that pencil. Seems unreasonable. I mean, it's one thing if I borrowed it and I was negligent. I lost it. I ruined it. So I should be responsible. But to say that I have to pay you back for the object that I borrowed, even if the reason I don't have it is, is nothing to do with my fault? Rav Cook explains that the Torah places this liability, this responsibility on the borrower, even in cases where if the article would have been lost anyway, you know, if a tornado comes, what does it matter if it's in my house or your house? It's, it's going to be gone anyway. The reason for this is because the Torah wants to encourage people to lend their objects to other people. And so by giving this higher level of liability to a borrower, when someone comes to me and says, can I borrow your tool? Can I borrow your whatever it is? I know that according to Jewish law, no matter what happens, I know I'm getting it back. And if for whatever reason, it doesn't matter why, I don't get that object back, I'm going to be compensated the exact monetary value. So the Jewish law is structured in such a way that its technical details encourage chesed, encourage helping others. And the reverse is also true. Talmud has an interesting question. Okay, so let's say if I borrow your animal. So I have to pay you back if no matter what happens to it. I have to pay you back. What happens if the reason that I borrowed your animal was to do something not right? Let's say, for example, I want to borrow your horse because I want to rob a bank. If you want to rob a bank, you need a fast horse. You have a fast horse. I want to borrow your horse. And let's say, Nebuch, the horse dies, whether it was my fault or it was not my fault, doesn't matter. The tablet says, I don't have to pay you back. I don't have to return a horse to you. It's kind of strange because you borrowed the horse. We just established before when you borrow something, you've got to pay it back no matter what happened. What does it matter the reason that you're borrowing it? You borrowed it. But now it makes perfect sense according to what Rav Cook says. Because 
if the reason that I'm borrowing it is improper, the Torah doesn't want you to lend it to me. The Torah doesn't want you to participate in my wrongdoing. And therefore, the Torah wants to discourage you from lending an object to someone who's going to use it for a wrong purpose. Again, the law reflects our identity. It reflects our values. And that's why it is the first subject that is covered in detail after last week's Aserah Sedibros, the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Let me share another example. Another example of the values that are expressed in our Parsha through the legal details. And this is an idea that comes from my friend, my teacher, Abe Mesrich. So if you think just broadly, thematically, the book of Bereshus, Genesis, an underlying theme of the entire book is who's better than whom? Who's the favorite? Who's not the favorite? Cain and Hevel, Yishmael and Yitzchak, Yaakov and Esav, Yosef. Yosef is sold into, uh, into slavery. The Egyptians and the Jews, slaves, free people. The whole book has this underlying running theme of who's the favorite, who's in, who's out, who's in first place, who's in second place. That's voracious. Then comes our Parsha. Our Parsha, the Parsha Mishpatim, the first Parsha after God reveals himself in Mount Sinai, this is the beginning of God's description of the society that he demands we become. And it's a society built on law. It's a society built on undoing the notion of favoritism. Among the mitzvahs in this week's parsha, if you have a servant that works for you after a certain number of, after six years, you have to let him go free because there's no such thing as one Jew owning another Jew, one Jew being a Lord over another Jew. No such thing. Our parsha contains the concept of equal protection under the law. The Torah says in our parsha, ger lo sona, don't mistreat the ger, the stranger, the immigrant, the convert. Just because a person has what you may think is a lower social standing or a lower economic standing, you have to treat them exactly the same. Equal protection. Everyone is treated equally. The Torah says in our parsha, lo sikach shochad. A judge is not allowed to accept a bribe. Wealth cannot make you entitled to better treatment. When you come before the law, you come as an individual like everyone else. Doesn't matter how rich you are. It also doesn't matter how poor you are. The Torah also says just the opposite. Dal lo sed abarivo. You shouldn't favor the poor person. Maybe you think to yourself, oh, no, I'm a tzaddik. I'm a tzaddik. 
I always take the side of the underdog. It doesn't matter what the law is. I'm always going to let the poor person win. That's also wrong. Every person is equal before the law. That is the principle that is established throughout the details of our Parsha. What God is saying to the Jewish people is in the society that I am telling you to create, that I am commanding you in all these details, which will lead to the creation of this society that I want, every single one of you is beloved and is equal. What we have in our Parsha is the transformation or the reverse of Bereshus. Bereshus is about favoritism. Who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down. We come to Mishpatim, this is how society is going to be. Everyone is equal. And this is a core value of Judaism that is expressed throughout our Parsha. Because of which it is placed first after the narrative at Mount Sinai. Another core value that's expressed in the legal details of our Parsha. If you think back to last week's Parsha, God revealing himself at Mount Sinai. Remember the famous verse in the build-up, the preparation for that monumental event. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Remember the saying of our sages, like one person, one heart, unified. There was never a sense of unity among the Jewish people as there was at that moment. That's the end of a very long process that started hundreds of years earlier when the Torah told us, Shivim Nefesh, Yordim Lumitzrayim, 70 souls, Yaakov's family, descended to Egypt. How do we get from 70 individual souls to one people united and unified? What completed that transformation, that journey? I'll tell you, if you let your animal loose and it causes damage, you're responsible. If you start a fire and it spreads and causes damage, you're responsible. If you agree to watch something for someone, let's say your friend, and you're negligent and it breaks, you're responsible. These are the details, some of the details that our Parsha presents. Now there's actually a phrase in the Talmud that says Adam Muad La'olam. A person is always responsible. You're responsible for your actions if they're deliberate, if they're unintended, if it was an accident, if it was on purpose, if you're awake, if you're asleep. You're responsible for anything that you cause. You're responsible. That's not just a legal standard, that's a formula for life. And our Parsha goes on to say, we're not only responsible for our own actions, we're responsible for the actions of our animals. We're responsible for 
any damage that's caused by any of our possessions. If I leave something in a place where someone might trip over it, I'm responsible because my possession, my object, caused harm. And not only am I responsible for the compensation, I'm responsible for the lost wages, I'm responsible for the doctor bills. Each of us is responsible for the well-being of the other. And that includes, of course, that we are responsible for our words. And to be very careful about not saying something, not to say something that is false, even close to false. Midvar sheker tirchak. Stay far away from falsehood. That's also a responsibility that we have. That responsibility is what creates community. Because I am required to be careful of my impact on you through my actions, through my words, because we are a community. And each of us is responsible to and for each other. In this sense, our Parsha presents the methodology through which we reached Sinai as a unified and cohesive people. Finally, in this direction, one last approach, but it's a different approach. This is an approach that will argue that our Parsha is actually an elaboration on the first of the Ten Commandments. Anochi Hashem I am the Lord your God. And this is an insight that I heard from Rabbi Elimelech Bluth, a blessed memory. He was a great scholar and a student of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. In the Aseris Adibris, the Ten Commandments start off, Anochi Hashem I'm Lord your God. You have to believe in God. One God. We all say it. We read it last week. We believe it, of course. Yes, we believe in God. And we say, Shema Yisrael. Hashem Lekein Hashem There's only one God. We assert there's only one God. We say Hashem is a Melech. We're Mamlech. We proclaim that God is the sovereign. God's in charge. Yes, we say that. We say it, but do we really mean it? Do we really believe in God? You know, saying Shema Yisrael is not so hard. Acting in your life with the awareness that you are living in the presence of God that's a little bit more difficult. Let me give you a better barometer as to whether we are actually living with the reality of God's presence in our lives. Our sages tell us in the Talmud, adam Every Rosh Hashanah, God decides how much income we are going to have. Now, we still have to work hard 
because we've discussed this before, a person can't just sit back and rely on miracles. A person has to do his shtadlis. I have to do my part. I have to put in my effort. I have to work hard. I can't rely on a miracle. But the point is, no matter how hard I work or what I do, I will never ever earn more than God intended for me to earn last Rosh Hashanah. If somebody steals, it's a crime. But it also demonstrates that they don't really believe in God. They don't really believe that God is running the show. Because if I steal, it means I'm not satisfied with what I have. I think I can get a little bit more. But God says, you're only going to get what I decided this past Rosh Hashanah. So if you gain more in some illicit manner, it just means you're going to lose something in somewhere else. You're not going to end up with any more than I intended to give to you. And if part of it comes through illicit means, <laughs> you haven't helped yourself. And you've demonstrated you don't really believe that I'm a part of your life, God says. When a person is careful about monetary matters, they demonstrate God is real. God is the Melech. God is the King. God decides. Person finds something, a, a, a lost object. Somebody lost something. Maybe they're tempted to keep it themselves. But they say, no, the Torah says I have to give it back. I have to try to find the person I give it back. Person who makes sure to treat their workers fairly, pay them a, a, a fair wage, even though it means they're going to lose money. Person who is careful about paying taxes and careful about... Uh, claiming, not claiming tax deductions that are not really appropriate. And a person might think to themselves, you know, I'm losing so much money. I have to pay so much money. But I'm always going to have the amount that God wants me to have. Dr. Mayor Tamari makes this point in a very dramatic way. One of the prohibitions in this week's Torah portion is the prohibition of ribis, of charging interest on a loan. If one Jew lends money to another Jew, not allowed to charge interest. There's some exceptions, but that's the rule. It's a very strange mitzvah because why not? I mean, you're, you're borrowing my money to make money. If I, if I give you my car so that you can use it, I can, you could, I can tell you to pay me for, for my car. That's called renting a car. If I, um, uh, uh, lease, I can lease my land to you. If you want my land for a year to grow crops, I can charge you for that. Why can't I charge you for the use of my money? You're going to be making money from my money. 
there is no economic difference between leasing land for money and leasing money for money. And there's no moral difference. It makes no sense that one should be prohibited and the other permitted. Rabbi Shamsher Frol Hirsch gives the following answer. He says, in this mitzvah, we are required to give up what is legitimately ours in order to help others. A person comes to me and asks to borrow money. I have every moral and economic right to say, well, I can't give it to you for free, but I'll lease it to you. That would be the interest payment. Torah says, no, I'm required to give up what by all rights I ought to be able to take, the profit, the, the interest, because God places a limit on what we can do with our own money. Because God's in charge. Because God decides at the beginning of the year how much we're going to have. And so the essence of mishpatim, of all civil law, is that the Ten Commandments, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God, the commandments themselves, it's not just a social contract. It's a recognition that God has the right to tell us what to do. God has the right to tell us how to live. God has the right to tell us what to do with our own possessions. And God can tell us when we are not allowed to take a profit. God can tell us how we are to use our own things. That's part of what it means. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. The Talmud says, when a person passes away, they're going to come before God. Every one of us is going to come before God in judgment. And God has some questions. And the Talmud tells us what the questions are. And it's worthwhile to know the questions so we can start now to prepare the answers. The Talmud says God will ask every single one of us, Did you engage in business, in monetary manners with emuna, faithfully? Were you honest in your business practices? Did you tell the truth? Did you follow the law? Did you engage in business practices with emuna? Which also means with faith in God. Did you engage in your business with faith that there is a God and that you were never going to make more than God intended for you? And that even if you could have taken an advantage to yourself and it would have been private and nobody else would have known about it, but that there is a God who oversees and who tells you, no, that's not right. Did you live your life that way? We're going to be asked that question. And therefore, in this sense, our parsha of Mishpatim is the actualization, the concretization, the putting into practical life. Do we really believe in God? I'd like to go to another subject. <clears throat> because near the end of our Parsha Mishpatim, we have a very different narrative 
I discussed it one day earlier this week. It's actually a parallel to the narrative of last week's Parsha, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And it's in our Parsha this week that we have the famous verse. By Yomru, the Jewish people said, Kol asher diber Hashem na the famous phrase, na everything that God says, we will do it and we will learn about it. In other words, we're committing to doing it even before we know what it is. The Talmud tells us that when the Jewish people said those words, Nasev and Nishma, the Talmud says there was great excitement in heaven. It gave great pleasure to God that we would commit to observing God's commandments even before we knew exactly what all of them were. Because what it means is we are convinced that God will only ask of us something that is good for us. That's why we made the commitment. I'll give you an example. If I ask you to do me a favor, would you please do me a favor? So there are two answers. Well, the three answers. <laughs> One is no. <laughs> okay. One is yes. And the other is, what is it? What's the difference? Well, clearly, if I say, what is it? It's because I'm not sure I'm going to want to do it. You can ask, but I have to decide if I want to do it. If I say yes, will you do me a favor? Yes. Yes means that I am convinced, I am certain that you would only ask of me something that I can do, that it is good, and that it is the best thing for me. I'm convinced of that. That's why I say yes. If I'm not convinced of those things, then I'll say, maybe, what is it? That's what Nasha Vinishma is. Nasha Vinishma is our conviction, our certainty that if God is going to command something in the future, for sure it's the best thing for me. And what every one of our ancestors expressed at Mount Sinai with the words Nasev Nishma is likewise expressed by every single person who converts to Judaism. Because every single one of us, when I say us, those people that consider themselves born Jewish, every single one of us is descended from a convert to Judaism. Every single one of us. Our portion describes how the entire Jewish people converted to Judaism at Mount Sinai. That is the ceremony that took place. And the procedure that is described in our Parsha of the Jewish people at Mount Sinai is in fact the conversion ceremony till this day. Men are required to have bris milah, ritual circumcision. Everyone is required to immerse in a mikvah. And most importantly, kabbalas mitzvos. A person has to accept upon themselves to observe all of the mitzvahs of the Torah to the best of their ability for the rest of their life. 
That is the essence of conversion. Vayikach Sefer Habris, Vayikra Ba'aznei Ha'am, Moshe took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, Vayomru, and they said, Kol Asher Dibar Hashem, Nasev Nishma, everything that God says, we will do it, and we will learn about it. And we commit to doing it, even if we don't yet know about it. At the mikvah, at the finalization of a conversion process, a conversion ceremony, we say to the person, do you commit to observing all the mitzvahs of the Torah? We're not just looking for the answer. Yes, of course, there's a process that has to lead us that when the, the answer is yes, that we, that we can trust that answer. That's the process that leads up to it. It's got to, it's got to mean something. And we ask this question at the mikvah. We ask this question. What about, should there come a time when you learn about a mitzvah that you do not yet know about? Do you commit to that also? And we only proceed if the answer is yes, which is saying, Nasevanishma. I am committed right now to the concept that any mitzvah means God is saying that is what is best for me. I'm committing to observing it, even if I don't yet know about it. That is the essence of conversion. And so every conversion to Judaism is in fact a recreation of the event at Mount Sinai of the children of Israel converting to Judaism. And that puts one last Pasuk in our Parsha in a very new light. Because there's a Pasuk in our Parsha that says as follows. The Ger Lo Silchatz do not mistreat a ger. Again, the word ger in the Torah is used to mean stranger. It means immigrant. It means convert to Judaism. Do not mistreat such a person. Viatem yadatem es nefesh ger, because you know what it feels like to be a ger. Ki gerim heyisim be'eretz mitzrayim. You were strangers in Egypt. You were foreigners in Egypt. You were immigrants in Egypt. You were looked down upon in Egypt. Don't do it to anyone else. Well, that's a basic statement of morality. Yes, of course. And by the way, this mitzvah in the Torah of not mistreating a ger is repeated 36 times. There is no other mitzvah of the Torah repeated as frequently as this mitzvah. because our journeys are the same. Because our experiences of otherness are the same. And because the expectations that God has of us are the same. So I ask you to consider that this Shabbos. As you hear the Torah being read, or as you study it at home, consider the way in which every single one of us 
has gone through and is going through and is asked to go through this process of conversion, this process of na'asevinishma, of coming to the realization that if God commands something by definition, it is the best thing for me. My friends, I want to wish you a great night and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.